our reading now on which Tim will preach. So let's look at 1 Corinthians, still in chapter 1, starting at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptised into my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's come to God in prayer. Question for you to ponder. Do we have cliques in Brighton Road? It's not a new question. Over the eight years I've been here, it's been raised as a matter of concern on a number of occasions. The fact that it's been talked about and considered doesn't mean it's a problem that needs to be addressed. It's rather the case that people recognise that it's a danger to avoid. I think there's always a risk that when a group of people who get on well together form the basis for a group in church, whether that's a ministry or a house group or a Bible study, but there's nothing wrong with people having circles of friends in church. Actually, everything we do is relational. It would be highly inappropriate if close friendships did not develop within church. Because church should be a place where we can build friendships with people we can trust, knowing that we will be there for them and they will be there for us. Having solid, firm friendships is part of what church should be about. I say that because just occasionally I get wind of someone grumbling that they've been unwell or in need of help and the church hasn't done anything. A friend has come round and given them what they need and it's a friend in church, but it hasn't been the church. Well, actually, if your friend is part of the church, then the church is doing it through your friend and there's no distinction to be drawn there because the church operates on the basis of friendship. And actually it would be rather sad if people who work together or go to the same house group didn't build good friendships with each other. Members of a Christian fellowship are not obliged to care for one another on the basis of a kind of professional detachment. I'm going to care for you, but I'm going to keep my distance from you. We can and should have good friends in church. 
That said, it's rightly expected of me as minister that I will offer the same level of care and support to everyone associated with church, irrespective of whether I get on well with them or not. Now, that's one of the differences about being a minister, I guess. I mean, I try and get on well with everybody. But if I were to favour my friends and neglect other people I wasn't quite so close to, everyone would be quite rightly upset by that. And we have a team of pastoral visitors, do we not, whose job it is to ensure that those who don't have a network of friends around them don't slip through the net of pastoral care because there aren't people who know them well enough to automatically gather around and offer support when they need it, which is what happens the majority of the time, actually. And sometimes pastoral visitors become friends of the people that they visit. And there's nothing wrong with that, so long as it doesn't become exclusive. I think it's that word exclusive that brings us to the nub of the issue. If a group starts to isolate themselves from the rest of the church, that's when you get the kind of warning lights flashing a bit. I'm not talking about meeting socially or even going on holiday together. I'm talking about when a group starts to look itself on itself as being somehow a cut above the rest. Now, this is where it's at. This is, this is the core of Brighton Road. We're the, the real spiritual ones and, and we've got it sorted. And other groups, they're okay, but the centre of gravity is here with us. That's not a good attitude to have. And if a group stops serving others within the church or begins to withdraw from having fellowship with others of the church and starts to turn in on itself, that's where a clique starts to develop. And if a group starts to feel that they are right and everybody else is wrong, well, that's where schisms develop and factions come into being and the unity of the body of Christ begins to tear. Is that what was happening at Corinth? It's a good question, and there are extremely learned debates about the answer. Were there factions in Corinth? Was the church splitting along party lines? And if so, were the divisions based on differences of doctrine or practice? Or was it simply that Paul, Apollos and Cephas all had their own little fan clubs, which had formed maybe without their knowledge or consent? Was there a degree of rivalry between Paul and Cephas and Apollos? Or were they actually all on the same page? It was just other people who were playing them off against each other, maybe even without their knowledge. And if that was happening, how much damage was that causing? Or maybe there weren't factions at all. Maybe there were just arguments and debates between individuals about the merits of each of these church leaders and who had the honour of being closest to the most prestigious of them because the city of Corinth, after all, was a place where there was intense competition for honour and status. And, you know, you got big by being close to someone else bigger than you. This culture may have infiltrated the church. So the shorter answer is we can't be sure. What we do know is that members of Chloe's household have been in touch with Paul to tell him, Paul, there's quarrelling going on in the church People are disagreeing with each other. There are, there are difficulties and problems. Interesting that it's a little group of people who've contacted Paul about the rest of the church. Chloe's household is one way of translating the phrase. It could mean Chloe's household. It could mean Chloe's group, those who meet at Chloe's house, or Chloe's circle of friends. Maybe 
they were actually in danger of being a little clique of their own. But, you know, our loyalty is to Paul. He's the one that we're following. Clearly, if they got in touch with Paul, they had a sense of loyalty to him. And reading between the lines, it looks like they may have written a letter to Paul and said, Paul, there's all these different things going wrong in the church. You need to sort it out. And Paul has a difficult job answering the letter because it's apparent, actually, he doesn't always take their side on everything. He doesn't quite necessarily see it from their point of view, even though they are the ones who are kind of behind him. Actually, you haven't quite got it right in every respect here. Then, as now, church politics can be a highly sensitive and contentious issue. On the face of it, in his response, Paul sets the bar extremely high. He appeals to the highest authority available to him, calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he urges everyone in the church to agree with each other so that there will be no divisions among them and so that they will be perfectly united in mind and thought. Wow, that's a big ask. At first sight, it looks like a very forcible clampdown. There's no room for debate, no room for dissent, No space for argument or disagreement. You all need to toe the line. You all need to say and think the same thing as me. I have to say that if I tried to impose that kind of degree of control on Brighton Road, I don't think I would stay here all that long. And I say that not because you are a particularly opinionated congregation, but because Paul's approach here smacks of a kind of top-down imposition of authority, which isn't the way we do things, really, in a Baptist church. Whatever authority I may have here as a minister is accorded to me by you as members of the congregation. And that authority is checked and, and circumscribed in two vital ways. In the first place, I can only ever be a servant of God's word. That sets the limits of what I can say with any degree of authority at all. If I start to state as gospel truth my own ideas or claim authority for my plans for the future, then I am stepping out of line. I can only operate within the limits prescribed by the word of God. And the second check, of course, is that of the church meeting. That's where the authority of a Baptist church is to be found, not in the minister, not a top-down setup. Uh, so I don't have authority over you, and there's no one over me who has authority over me. But I am subject to the church meeting as we all are. And the members of the church are those who've bound themselves together in a covenant relationship of love and trust to cooperate in the cause of the gospel. People who are committed to Christ and to each other, and who've agreed to take responsibility for the life and work of the church. And when the members of the church gather together in a church meeting, we do so to find the mind of Christ, and we do this by listening what each of us has to say, and by weighing it carefully to discern the mind of the Spirit, recognising that nobody has a monopoly on the Spirit of God or the wisdom of God, but the Spirit might speak through anybody. And I've been in church meetings where words of profound wisdom have been said by someone with quite severe learning difficulties. You just, for all the debates stood up and said, actually, you know, I think this. And he got straight to the nub of the matter. And the Spirit of God spoke through him. By the grace of God, 
There are church meetings where everyone is perfectly united in mind and thought. Amazing and incredible as it might appear, it does actually happen and we bless God for that. But the process of arriving at that point has to allow scope for disagreement and the expression of different perspectives and points of view. And as long as that is done in humility and mutual respect, that's a good thing. And I'm profoundly relieved to say that is the tone of meetings here at Brighton Road. But Paul's language is quite specific. He says, I want you all to say the same thing. And I want you all to be perfectly united in the same mindset and the same purpose. It's a lot to ask. Too often when two or three gather in Jesus' name, you get four different opinions. Yet there are things that we can and should be able to say together with complete confidence and without disagreement. The Lord's Prayer, for example. Not an easy prayer to pray, actually, if you're sitting in a room with someone with whom you disagree. As soon as you say, Our Father, you recognise that you are bound to this person by family ties because God is as much their father as he is yours. You are praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You are submitting your will to God's will. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. can also take a bit of working through sometimes. But these are words which within the body of Christ we ought to be able to pray together And if we can't, then we have some serious work to do in terms of reconciliation. Another thing we ought to be able to say together is Jesus is Lord. It's his purposes that we fulfil. It's his mission that we are engaged on. We might disagree about, you know, exactly how to do it, but that is our goal, to honour Jesus Christ and to follow his leading and to be united in the cause of the kingdom of God. And if we agree on that fundamental issue, that has far-reaching consequences. Because if Jesus is Lord, it's his will we need to seek. And that precludes any attempt on my part to impose my will on you. Because it's not my will, it's Jesus' will. And actually, you know, I don't have a monopoly on understanding what that is. I might be convinced in my own mind, but that doesn't give me the right to, to impose what I think on anybody else. And if Jesus is Lord, he wants to bring us to the point where we're all on the same page, where we all share the same mindset and the same purpose. And that can be very hard to work through in situations where we are convinced that we are right and you have got it wrong. But there is no virtue in being right in the wrong way. If our convictions lead us into bullying or manipulation or pressurising, or bribing, or intimidating, or riding roughshod over others, then we place ourselves in the wrong. There are big issues over which Christians have profound disagreements. And what grieves me is not the nature of the disagreements they have, but the way in which those disagreements are conducted and the nature of the arguments that take place over that. And if we start to think in terms of, this is an argument I need to win, 
then we need to recognise that we're already a long way down the road towards conflict. Because that's an attitude that's halfway down the road in terms of the escalation of conflict. There will be times when if we find ourselves in a minority of one, we need to shrug our shoulders and say, well, the will of the Lord be done. Sometimes you are right and it takes a long time for other people to realise that. Give it to God and they may come round in the end and accept that they may never recognise it was your idea in the first place. They might think they've dreamt it up all by themselves but it's the will of the Lord that matters. We may have got it wrong. Actually, that's always possible. And if we've been right and everybody else has been wrong, then we've played our part by saying our peace with good grace. It's up to the Spirit of God to convict others of the truth of what we say. So we say it, and we leave it with him, and we pray the will of the Lord be done. Unity does not come about through uniformity. Despite what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, the Lord does not want a church full of people who merely parrot whatever the person at the front tells them to think and say. There is no party line to toe because no group or individual has that authority. The only authority we accept is that of Jesus Christ. And where we disagree over what his will is, then we need to recognise that how we disagree with each other matters as much to him as the issue over which we're disagreeing. The prayer, thy will be done, covers not just what we should be doing, but also how we should relate to those with whom we don't see eye to eye. None of this is easy. It's soul-searching stuff but it's important. When Paul uses that phrase, I want you to be perfectly united in mind and thought, he's using a word there that's used of James and John mending their nets by the sea. And Paul wants the church to be mended, restored to unity. Where there have been divisions, quarrels, disagreements, arguments, where feelings have run high and sharp words have been exchanged, that those relationships should be mended, that tears in the fabric of the body of Christ should be sewn up, that the Spirit of God should restore us to a common mind and purpose, that of serving Christ. Bottom line is that at the foot of the cross we are all sinners. We are all equally in the wrong. And we are all equally saved by grace. There's no other attitude you can have in that position than that of humility. There's no room for saying, well, I've got it right and you're in the wrong. We can't take that moral high ground because there is no moral high ground in the body of Christ. We're all saved by grace. And we express that as we share communion together. We are all saved by Christ. We're all saved by putting our faith and trust in him. His body broken for our brokenness. 
his blood shed for our sin. It's the only way we find acceptance. It's the only way we can be saved. It's the only way we can conduct ourselves as members together in the body of Christ. So before we come and share communion together, can I invite you to join together in saying the Lord's Prayer? And uh, we'll use the traditional version and we'll say it and have a few moments quiet afterwards to reflect on what we said. So let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever.